Which don't. Voyager did you don't. watch, by the way? Uh, <laughs> that's so unkind. It's hurtful. What is this? The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen to it. Engage. Hello, Picard people, and welcome to Vintage Picard. An engaging podcast about Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. I am Gary McComiskey, longtime Star Trek fan and my co-host on this track. Hello, I'm James Ajazi. And we are two gentlemen who take Star Trek very seriously ourselves, not so much. And we are very happy to be coming to you here another episode of the podcast to deliver to you now if you were paying attention to our feed recently you know that just this past week we surprise we dropped not a full episode but in fact something that we're calling a briefing in fact it was an overview of the series that we are covering an episode from on this very episode of the podcast namely star trek voyager now, being one of these Star Trek series of, let's say, lesser popularity than some of the others, we thought perhaps you might not be as familiar with Star Trek Voyager as you are with Next Generation. You said yourself that this is only a possibility. So we decided that you might be able to use a primer. You might find that useful. So if you have not seen Voyager in quite some time, if you don't remember exactly what the series was about, who the main characters were, etc., etc., maybe go back and listen to that briefing, if you haven't already, because we got you covered. We don't want you to be lost in the Delta Quadrant for this episode. We want you to be up to speed, that speed being maximum warp for 75 years, and so we got you covered. We have to get as much information as possible about that anomaly. But, uh... Before, Before we dive into the coverage of today's Voyager episode, James, in fact, I would like to tell you, and you, listener, that I have some news to report here on the podcast. Proceed. Specifically. So, first off, we still don't have a concrete release date for Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. However... We have a little more of an idea about what the problems they are facing in this work from home situation might actually be. So one of the, the main problems that they are running into right now, it's all post-production that they're working on right now and video effects and, and just, you know, regular editing and, and post-production stuff that all takes time. But one of the big hurdles that they're having to overcome is the orchestration. Now, Every Star Trek episode, or, or almost every Star Trek episode, for, you know, since Next Generation, has used, like, a full orchestra in order to compose the background music and score for the series. And Discovery is no different. Unfortunately, in these, uh, these lockdown times, it's, it's very difficult to have a socially distanced orchestra. 
So they are basically working from home. And in some uh, less complex productions, television productions, what is being done is the composer or the, the conductor, I guess, maybe one and the same. I'm not sure. I guess it varies from production to production. But the person in charge of the orchestra is actually doing individual one-on-one sessions with each of the musicians and recording those and then mixing them all together in post, which must be incredibly difficult. Mm, I can imagine. And it's really not practical necessarily to do that for Star Trek Discovery, which has a, a full orchestra for their music. So I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. I'm sure they have some of the music in the can already, but not a full season's worth. So that is one of the challenges that they are facing in getting the series launched for season three. I can't imagine what that could be like to, I mean, I'm impressed enough when you're in front of an orchestra and, and everybody's doing his or her own part and working mm-hmm. in unison, but individually and then putting that all together in post oh boy that's that's incredibly and how many people are in these, this particular orchestra too that that can't be easy no i don't know a room full i've seen yeah. video <laughs> yeah i mean it's not just one violinist and uh, one guy on the drum right, or sure. whatever you know, somebody mm-hmm. with a triangle it's good golly in orchestra james it's called percussion not drum yeah yeah <laughs> Because orchestras are, are fancy. That's correct. They're fancy. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm lowbrow. I don't, uh, I don't have culture. Just like Tom Paris, but we get ahead exactly. of ourselves. <laughs> so, James, another bit of news to report is on another Star Trek series that is coming to CBS All Access, namely Lower Decks. Now, you may recall Lower Decks as being the animated series that will follow a Starfleet vessel of lesser importance and specifically the like lowest ranking crew members on this really unimportant vessel. It's uh, thematically, it's a little bit similar to the Star Trek, the next generation episode of the same name. Very good episode. Indeed. If you haven't seen that one, or you don't recall just from the name lower decks was a seventh season episode about uh, it was basically focused on four i think they were all ensigns and they were in different departments and it was kind of following them around in the course of uh, their roles in a specific mission and kind of how they perceived the events that were going on from a distance uh, the the important events that were going on on the enterprise that they were kind of tangentially involved in but not directly it was a very well done episode with a bit of a, a gut punch at the end but it was really really a good episode agreed this is not dramatic this is a comedy but you know in in terms of the the focus it's similar as i said and in fact we have now learned or Maybe we knew already and I didn't know. I learned, but someone learned that this series is actually going to take place during the Star Trek The Next Generation era. It's not contemporary with Star Trek Picard. It is contemporary with Jean-Luc Picard's most famous command. The USS Enterprise. And uh, so that, that is going to be fun because that was a great era for Star Trek. And less, you know, I, I believe the kids call it grimdark, what? which is the mood 
that Star Trek Picard has adopted and hopefully will be able to find its way out from under a little bit. Who the hell are we to determine the next course of evolution for this people? Just uh, one other thing, the ship that it's going to be set on is called the USS Cerritos. I don't know the class of ship. I don't know if they've announced that, but that's it. And uh, supposedly they are going to, it's going to be similar to the next generation in that there's going to be some kind of significant event in every episode. But again, it's similar to Lower Decks. The main characters who are all low-ranking crew members may not be directly involved in that. They may just kind of experience it from afar. Therefore, we'll be experiencing what they're experiencing from afar, which is an, an interesting viewpoint to base an entire series on. Let's see if they can stick the landing. So the thing that they announced specifically, the showrunner was interviewed and he announced that as of now, they are still on target for a 2020 release. Now, we don't know when in 2020. One assumes it would have to be later in 2020, especially given the circumstances. But animation apparently is something by his own admission kind of uniquely suited for these circumstances because you don't all have to be on a set together. And really, you just in terms of performance, you just have to be able to set the actors up with a good recording rig and I guess be able to direct them from afar. So that is something that they have done. They're hopeful that they will still be able to release it this year. So we have that to hopefully look forward to. Understood. Finally, in the news segment, and most directly related to the focus of this podcast, I have some Star Trek Picard news to share, James, and listener. Uh, so Patrick Stewart was interviewed in uh, kind of a promotional bid. They, they're hoping to garner some, you know, it's awards season coming up, and they're hoping to garner some awards for Star Trek Picard. So they threw Sir Patrick out there to show his face and, and flash his smile and engage with some reporters. I understand what you've done here. So, uh, you know, just kind of drum up some interest in the series. But he was uh, he was interviewed. He had some interesting tidbits to pass along. And uh, first of all, they are currently in the process of writing the second season of Star Trek Picard. It seems like they are still in kind of the outline phase. I don't know if they've actually started writing episodes or if they're still like storyboarding and outlining the season, but they are very much involved in that story creation process currently. And as an executive producer, Patrick Stewart is looking forward to being a part of that process. He said he misses the writing room, but obviously that's not really a practical consideration right now but they're having video conferences and they are all you know working together on that he's hoping that they will see more next generation alums on the series which i you know given what lavar burton said recently which we covered and uh, given how close all of those actors are they you know they, they seem to indicate that that will happen. So I, I think that is a matter of when and not if. In fact, uh, unrelated to this particular interview, Jonathan Frakes was recently interviewed about coming back to direct more episodes of Star Trek Discovery and talking about his involvement with the franchise in general. 
he also kind of indicated that, uh, well, he said that the Nepente episode, which was the episode with uh, he and Deanna Troy. Ah, Counselor Troy. That was kind of a, a trial balloon to see how people would react to the old cast coming back. And it seems like they reacted pretty well. Obviously. So it's a good bet that we will see more next-gen people in future episodes of Star Trek Picard. Duh. Yeah, well, sure. But (laughs) the one thing that Patrick Stewart did say that he wanted, that he insisted on for those characters is that they have evolved as people in the same way that Captain Picard evolved from the person that he was when we last saw them. So that's why the Rikers were like on a planet having gone through their own personal trauma instead of just still on the Titan where William T. Johnny Frakes was the captain for, for however long. The idea is that they will all have kind of advanced in their lives to a different point from, from where they were. Again, duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another thing that will be a main focus of the second season is that Admiral Picard will spend a lot of time kind of coming to terms with his new body. Remember, the real Captain Admiral, Admiral Picard has uh, slipped the bounds of, of, well, I was going to say Earth, but I guess he did that before he actually kicked the bucket. Uh, but he has, uh, he is no more in this universe. This Admiral Picard is a synthetic recreation of, I mean, that's a whole thing. We covered it in our review of the season and, and, and that episode in particular. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more ground that we will retread. So I'm not going to go over it now, but that will be a focus of the second season. No doubt. And uh, finally, one one last salient bit of information that Sir Patrick let slip in this interview is that uh, a, a main character from the first season of Star Trek Picard may not return, at least not for the second season, perhaps not at all. He was a bit ambiguous about, you know, specifics, but he he led us to believe that this person may not return. James, you can exhale. It's not the man on my shirt. Elnor? It is not Elnor. Good. Thank you. Thank you. How'd you know? (laughs) No, uh, James, I'm sure we we will have many more opportunities for people to choose to live, fortunately. Good. However, I, I, I do have to report that Star Trek Picard may be getting a bit less greasy because, uh, Narek, uh, Harry Treadway may be leaving the series. That is what Sir Patrick Stewart said. And uh, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if he resurfaces or not. I prefer to look on the future as something which is not written in stone. Sorry to keep uh, beating a dead horse, but um, if that is true, will the the Benny Hill music be playing on his way out? (laughs) It'll be like slowed down and in a minor key. Okay, thank you. Yeah. What are you doing? In all seriousness, though, I mean, it was very well acted, and I liked all the characters for the most part in the first season of uh, Star Trek Picard, but I guess when you're kind of a bad guy, maybe that would make sense that you might not come back. I mean, it's not like the arch enemy type bad guy thing, but for the actor's sake and for the character's sake, 
I, I don't know. Hopefully, uh, maybe if there's a season three, you could come back yeah, and uh, see what happens in the future. Yeah, honestly, I know we talked about, we speculated about whether he would come back or not. I would see like a season three return as being more effective than bringing him back in season two. The last we saw of him as viewers, he was like kind of in the custody of the synths and just kind of like on that planet. Although there was apparently a deleted scene where he was handed over to the Federation. So, you know, wherever he is, he may be stuck there for a while. Hopefully they have sonic showers wherever (laughs) he is. He is uh, held. Amen, sir. But so, so that is your Star Trek news for this episode. Do with it what you will. Very well. Thank you. That was an awful lot. Yeah, I was surprised. It's always pleasant to have some Star Trek news to report. I always like to be able to pass on the, the, the tidbits and nuggets that I am able to unearth. And as always, credit where it's due. I wanted to just put it out there that I do get most of my Star Trek news from trekmovie.com. So I, you know, I just want to give them their fair due in this case. It's an important consideration. And the other thing that I would like to do here on this podcast is actually uh, get things kicked off proper because we have a lot of episodes to cover here, James. It's a brand new series for this podcast. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the better episodes from that series, fortunately. What is it? You know what the series is because we already brought it up, but you don't know the episode. Well, I am happy to report to you, dear listener, that the episode in question that we are about to cover is Star Trek Voyager Season 7, Episode 19, Author, Author. Very good. Now, you may not be as familiar with this. Uh, Again, as I said, if you need a primer on Voyager, please feel free to go and you know, check out our briefing from last week, which I think we covered a lot of, a lot of ground and uh, tried to give you a pretty good overview of Voyager, uh, you know, to set up for this, this particular episode. But there's just a little more episode specific setup that I would like to do here. If you'll indulge me, I think it will help make things a little clearer and bring things into a little more focus as we review it. Agreed. Continue the analysis. Keep me informed. So, first and foremost, this is the end of Season 7. So, there were only five or six, I guess, depending on how you consider the two-hour finale, episodes left after this one. So, we are in the home stretch, And, you know, most of the series is behind them at this point. So, this is kind of just... I was going to say the end game, but that was actually the name of the last episode. So that wouldn't work. That would be just confusing. Agreed. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're right, right up to it here. So this episode is similar to how the episode that we covered on our last episode of this podcast, the quality of life was a spiritual successor to the measure of a man. This episode of Voyager I would say is kind of a a sequel of sorts to an, a season six Voyager episode called Lifeline. Now, in that episode, the doctor, who you may recall is the emergency medical hologram for Voyager, he is a computer program, a, a hologram. He is able to be transmitted through 
Star Trek shenanigans. He's able to be transmitted from Voyager, which is in the Delta Quadrant, to a Starfleet facility, specifically Jupiter Station, in orbit of Earth, because they're able to do that. They basically, if if you missed last week, um, the the very short version is Reginald Barkley, who was a recurring character on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Mr. Broccoli. Barkley. He begins a project called the Pathfinder Project, which is devoted to the idea of communicating with Voyager and ultimately bringing them home. So as part of the, this project, at that point in, in the episode Lifeline, they have just developed the ability to communicate with Voyager uh, once a month. So they're able to send them a data stream, a compressed data stream, and Voyager is able to send one back once a month. So um, we find out in that episode that Dr. Lewis Zimmerman, who you may recall is the person who developed the EMHs, uh, we met him in Star Trek Deep Space Nine for the first time, and uh, he is dying. So Reg Barkley uh, tells the doctor and the doctor begs for his program to be sent to the Alpha Quadrant to try and treat him because he has access to groundbreaking treatments based on Borg nanoprobes that uh, they may not have discovered in the Alpha Quadrant. And he thinks he's found a way to treat him when no one else can. So he gets sent to the Alpha Quadrant and... You know, there's there's a whole bunch of character development and pathos and Counselor Troy shows up for some reason. And uh, it's it's a, that is also a really good episode. I, I don't think it's something that we need to cover as a standalone on this because outside of the bounds of this particular setup, how it impacts the episode we are actually covering today, I don't think there's enough there to tie into Star Trek Picard to consider it. But you should go out of your way to watch it, because I think that is also one of the better Voyager episodes. Lifeline in season six. Duly noted. So the reason why it's important for this episode is because, among other things, we discover what happened to the Doctor's fellow EMH Mark Ones, the first version of the emergency medical hologram. And what we discover in that episode is that they were considered by Starfleet to be a colossal failure. They were brusque. They were unpleasant. They were very difficult to deal with. So Dr. Zimmerman created the EMH Mark II, which was what he was working on in that episode of Deep Space Nine. He had decided to model it on Dr. Julian Bashir. He, he ultimately didn't, but that's neither here nor there. Once the EMH Mark IIs were rolled out, instead of just decommissioning all the Mark Ones, Starfleet decided to gather them all, uninstall them from the starships that they were on, and use them as manual labor to scrub out plasma conduits on waste barges. So basically, instead of being able to be doctors, they were all made into essentially slave labor, because that's how Starfleet saw them. And, you know, I'm sure you can see that <laughs> if you've listened to our last two episodes, then you know where this is going. Has it been that apparent? But that is the important information that you need to know from that first episode. And uh, so that kind of brings us 
to this episode, which, as I said, season seven, episode 19, author, author. Now, in this episode, we begin in the holodeck. Now, Voyager's holodeck is a little different from what you might be used to from Star Trek The Next Generation or even Quark's Hollow Suites. They're a lot brighter with a lot more things that look like light stands for some reason. Uh, it's and tripods like there's just it's not the black room with the yellow grid. There's all this kind of lattice work in the room for I don't know. It doesn't matter. It honestly, it kind of looks more like an indoor dig site than it does a holodeck, but it's an aesthetic choice. I, I guess I can't really uh, I can't get on them too badly for just doing something differently. Anyway, so we start on the holodeck and uh, before I proceed with the description of the episode, one more thing you might not understand about the Star Trek universe, and this is something that came up particularly in Voyager, is they have something called hollow novels. Now, in Star Trek The Next Generation, and even on Deep Space Nine, when they wanted to participate in a holodeck adventure, they just opened up holodeck program number X, J, Y, etc. In Voyager, a lot of what they do is called hollow novels. And it's basically, it's the same thing, except they're trying to fancy it up by implying that this is the next evolution of literature. Like instead of reading books, now they interact with hollow novels in the holodeck. They're, they're basically interactive books. They're choose your own adventure hologram things. Delightful. So... That's what we're talking about here at the beginning of this episode. Specifically, we we open in the holodeck and the doctor is very poetically narrating his own creation, kind of his uh, his bringing into being of himself. And so we see the doctor very slowly from the ground up materializing, wearing some kind of fancy smoking jacket not dissimilar to what Data wore in the future of All Good Things, and kind of also an echo back to what he wore at the very end, although a different color, at the very end of Star Trek Picard. So he's, he's wearing this smoking jacket, he sits down at a desk with a quill, and he starts writing in a book. And then we see the real doctor, the actual EMH, dressed in his uniform, Pops in and he says, computer, save revisions and move to chapter one, right into credits. So right from the start, we get the idea that the doctor is writing some kind of holodeck program. And I'll cut to the chase. He is writing his own hollow novel. So hence all the setup. I see. Now, if you remain unfamiliar with Voyager, one thing I do have to give them credit for is the opening theme is gorgeous like that whole sequence it's it's really it's lush shots of the voyager ship flying past suns and through nebula and 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 zooming over planets and you know just the orchestration we talked about orchestration and how important it is and how difficult it is for Star Trek series just a little while ago, the orchestration for Voyager is, is really, really well done. So that, you know, it's just, this may be my bias showing, but we haven't gotten a theme like this since Voyager for a Star Trek series. And 
as far as I'm concerned, that's what a Star Trek opening should be. Like, that's what I grew up on, next-gen DS9, Voyager, and, you know, Enterprise deviated from that with, you know, the the kind of the montage uh, with, with uh, you know, lyrics, and that always seemed weird to me. Discovery and Star Trek Picard have gone back to the the just instrumental themes and I will give Discovery credit. I mean, let me say both of them. Both of them are are, you know, beautiful pieces of music, but they're not the inspiring like Star Trek soaring yeah, I don't I'm not enough of a musician to be able to describe the feeling that it evokes, but there's just something about those early themes. You know, even the original series, it wasn't orchestrated. It was kind of uh, you know, it was like a, a theremin, right? Uh, I want you to stop this immediately. That I'm sorry, that's a terrible rendition of what it was. You know yeah, what it was. On. Every <laughs> Every Star Trek fan knows what that theme sounded like. It was a but, bongo and a woman screaming real loud. I love it. I love it. I love it. But like it, you know, even that evoked the adventurous spirit of the show. I think of, I didn't mean for this to become a screed against modern Star Trek openings, but I think something has been lost that, that is less evocative of the spirit of Star Trek. And maybe it is more in line with the tone of these series, but I miss what we had, frankly. Also, get off my lawn, you kids. But, I mean, yeah. Uh, sorry. Again, I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but I just... Yeah. I don't know. We gotta pick up the pace here. I know, I know, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I will attempt to do so. So, the Voyager warps away to close the credits, and then we get the kind of establishing shot with uh, Voyager. And in the first proper scene of the episode, we see that uh, Voyager is actually establishing contact, video contact with Starfleet Command for the first time. So in Lifeline, which I just described, that was the introduction of the data stream, which allowed them to talk to Starfleet which they couldn't do previously because they were stranded in the Delta Quadrant and it was too far away for communication. And this is the kind of advent of the video stream, which, you know, again, there's not much series left, so it's not that big a deal, but... I'm afraid we're a little late. And this video stream allows them to talk to Starfleet for 11 minutes every day. The most impressive accomplishment. Because they're bouncing it off of a pulsar or something. I don't know. And so... As a result of that, then we, uh, oh, by the way, this was Barkley, Reg Barkley's idea, allowing them to do this. This this was his brainchild, and he's the one that tells them about it, along with Admiral Paris, which is Tom Paris's father. And so, as a result of this newfound communication, there is a lottery held in the mess by Neelix, which every member of the crew participates in, and he's got a stack of isolinear chips numbered one through 147 or whatever, as many crew members as there are. And that is the order in which they will be permitted three minutes a day to talk to home. So 
they do that. Uh, Harry Kim is really hoping that he's going to get a low number because his mom's birthday is like next week and he gets a really high number. So it's going to be like a couple of months before he actually gets to talk to them. And the doctor gets number one. He is the lucky winner of Isolinear Chip number one. And Harry Kim's like, hey, doc, you want to trade? Who are you going to be talking to in the Alpha Quadrant? And the doctor is like, actually, I do not want to trade. I have a very important call to make. Good day to you, sir. And then Tom being a good guy, he will trade. <laughs> so uh, he and Harry Kim are like best friends. So, you know, they're tight. So there's a little bit of precedent there. Anyway, so the reason that Doc wouldn't trade, I'm calling him Doc. We're very informal. We're, we're tight. I can do that. Well, I don't believe it. The reason the doctor will not trade, we find out in the next scene, is because he is talking to a publisher, specifically the publisher of the Dixon Hill hollow novel series, which is a nice nod back to Star Trek The Next Generation, a favorite of one Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Thrilling. That was absolutely thrilling. He's a big fan. And so uh, he's talking to this publisher about distributing the hollow novel that he, the doctor, is writing. So the, the publisher is very interested indeed. Um, so following that, the doctor has a conversation with Tom Paris about the novel. We get a little exposition about what it's all about. And it is called Photons Be Free. And uh, he is he's very proud of it. And he's a little reluctant, but finally he agrees to let Tom Paris try it out just to get it. It's not done yet, but he agrees to let Tom Paris take it for a test drive to see what he thinks and test drive it. Tom Paris does. That would actually be funnier if you realize that Tom Paris was a real freak for, you know, old fashioned earth tech like. 50s hot rods and stuff. So taking it for a test drive that it, you get it. I'm not so sure. Anyway, so we find out in, in the, the very beginning of said hollow novel, it's the doctor in his smoking jacket again, addressing you, the participant, that uh, what you are going to experience is, I don't know, high art. And it's his, I, I honestly, I tuned it out. It's boring. It's meant to be boring. But uh, what we get, the impression that we get from his kind of speech is that this is a thinly veiled skin of the Voyager crew. It is an interpretation of the experience that he has had on Voyager, although it's not Voyager. It's the I didn't even write it down uh, the uh, whatever, some other V word. But it's it's Voyager, essentially. <laughs> And so in this simulation, we see in the, in the very first scene when Tom Paris is in the shoes of the EMH, we, we see that the crew are very demanding versions and, and in some cases sadistic versions of the actual Voyager crew. They're kind of caricatures, very unflattering caricatures at that of the Voyager crew. Basically, I don't know. They, I, I can't even, I, I, I don't even want to describe it. But the, the point is that the idea is that they're like harassing and haranguing him. 
and they're making unreasonable demands and not trusting him to use his medical judgment. They're insisting on doing unreasonable things. And in fact, Captain Janeway actually shoots a guy. Captain's prerogative. Because he is a more dire case and she wants somebody else treated ASAP. So, uh, yeah, that's fun. So after that, Tom is in the mess hall and he's telling Harry and Bellana all about this, this hollow program. And they're like, I'm sure it's not that bad. And he's like, well, maybe you should try it out for yourself. See how it goes. He is actually worried about how this thing is going to make all of them look to people who are participating. They might think that it actually is how they are since it seems to be so closely based on them. And so they agree to try it out for themselves. And what follows is actually a, a pretty well done. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a montage. It's like a series of cuts intercutting the different crew members who are trying it out in the narrative, like from, from one scene to the next to the next. It's well edited, if nothing else. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, we start off with Bellana playing the doctor and she is sent by the Tom Paris stand-in, who is Lieutenant Marseille, very clever. And she, as the EMH, is sent to engineering because there's been a, an explosion, there's a big accident, crew members are really, really in trouble. So she has to strap on the mobile emitter. Now, the doctor's actual mobile emitter, as we mentioned in our briefing last week, is basically an Apple watch that he straps to his arm. This mobile emitter is like a giant proton pack from well, Ghostbusters, well said. essentially. What is that object? So uh, it's it's heavy and cumbersome, and uh, she has to she has to strap that on. She complains a little bit about how heavy it is, and Lieutenant Marseille says, "You should be glad we let you out at all." And so she goes down to engineering and discovers actually there's no accident, everything is fine. And she discovers a very condescending version of herself, the chief engineer, who's uh, really nasty and unnecessarily rude to everybody, including her as the EMH. And, uh, you know, some threats are levied unnecessarily. She goes back to sickbay and discovers that Marseille is playing doctor himself with the female crewman who showed up for a physical. That's fun. And he threatens the doctor, oh, if you tell my wife, you're going to get decompiled or whatever. And then, you know, there's some light comedy when another woman comes in for her physical and and the first woman's like, oh, you know, kind of uh, three's company, just kind of some, some three's company slapstick there. I'll take your word for it. And uh, so then we cut to a scene where Neelix is the doctor and he is in the ready room. He is in the captain's ready room. Captain Janeway, who's not Janeway in this, but uh, she is she is uh, stroking some weapons and uh, points one at him. Do you intend to blast a hole in the viewer? And, and her her wall, by the way, is filled with an evolution of weapons, which is, you know, not imposing at all. But so she levies her her weapon at him and she is belittling him and and basically haranguing him for having the audacity to try and expand his program, you know, the, 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 the confines of, of his program to be more, you know, to incorporate artistic and other interests into his program. And so he's kind of trying to defend himself saying, Oh, but this, 
this growth makes me a better doctor and she will have none of it. In fact, she has uh, ordered him to be taken to have these extraneous parts of his program deleted by Harry Kim and Tuvok. And so they are taking him to do just that when a version of Seven of Nine, Seven of Nine. shows up to try and spring him. She tries to help him, you know, uh, fly the coop, make good his escape. But unfortunately, he runs headlong into a force field and is dragged off to be, uh, you know, unceremoniously deleted. Now, uh, when, when they get back to sickbay where this is going to occur, now Captain Janeway herself Janeway. is in the role of the EMH. And so she is in sickbay awaiting her fate. And just as she is about to, uh, you know, the, the hollow version of Captain Janeway, she is about to delete essentially herself. Uh, Seven makes an impassioned plea on behalf of the holographic doctor about how holograms have rights and freedoms and they should be allowed to grow and, you know, explore their identities and they should be deserving of all the protections of any life form. And Hollow Janeway is like, nah, I don't think so. And that, that all that stuff doesn't matter. It's nonsense. And so the doctor is in the final scene of the hollow novel, like basically reformatted. And uh, we see everything like dissolving to white. When we get back to the epilogue and doctor is once again in the smoking jacket telling you, well, these events were fictional. They are based loosely on real issues that holograms like me face every day. Some variation on, on that speech. You always did have a flair for the dramatic. And uh, basically he's telling us that even though the events are fictional, they have elements of truth. And in many ways, these are the issues that holograms face on a regular day-to-day -day basis. So uh, Captain Janeway... She's not so pleased with how this thing came out. I think this charade has gone far enough. And she immediately calls him to the ready room, into commercial. So on the other side of the commercial, we are not in the ready room. We are, in fact, in the observation lounge. Ridiculous. And the whole bridge crew is there, and the doctor is trying to explain himself. He's like, listen, I don't know how many times I have to tell you this is not about you guys. These characters are not based on you. This isn't about the Voyager crew. I don't know why you have such a big problem with this. You see, I'm just not convinced that you are telling the truth. I wrote this based on my experiences. These are symbolic of my struggles as a hologram. And, uh, you know, they're not so pleased. They don't exactly embrace that point of view. And Captain Janeway kind of cuts to the chase. She's like, are you trying to tell us that you see yourself as a victim of all of this prejudice here on the ship? And he's like, well, maybe not me so much, but my fellow Mark Ones, the ones who are reduced to slave labor, they are the real victims. They are the ones who really need uh, to have their rights re-examined. So, you know, they're basically like, you know, yeah, you have the right to write this stuff, but are you really willing to accept the scorn 
of your colleagues who are going to see this and resent what you've written ostensibly about them. What do you think that tells me about your character? And he's like, you know what? If it means expressing myself as an individual, yes, I am willing to accept those slings and arrows. Bring them on. Very well. From there, we go to uh, a scene of Harry Kim talking to his parents over this comlink. And it's played entirely for comedy. She's like the, the overbearing mother who, you know, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're in charge of the ship. He's like, I, I never said that. I never said that. You know, well, you said that, that the captain puts you in charge sometimes. He's like, I'm only, I'm only in charge of the night shift a couple of times a week. It's not that big a deal. Just, when are you going to get promoted, Harry? Which is actually a, like a running gag through the course of the series, how he starts and ends this seven-year trip as an ensign on the bridge crew, running ops. Poor dumb Harry. And uh, he's like, listen, there, there aren't that many slots. It's a small crew. We're all stuck here. I, I can't. She's like, you know, I'm going to write your captain. I'm going to write a letter to your captain telling her you should be promoted because you work very hard. He's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then, uh, you know, he's like, I, I am definitely going to do that. And then they get cut off because of a solar flare. His call gets ended early. He's really upset about that because he had another like minute and a half left in his call. Seven of nine, who is there kind of running the whole thing. She doesn't understand what the big deal is. She's like, you're going to get to talk to them again in a couple of months. What's the problem if you missed out on a minute and a half or whatever? And she, she just she doesn't get it because she again, she's a former Borg. She's on the road to recovering her humanity. But at this point in her journey, she's still very much like her whole deal is efficiency and uh pragmatism she doesn't really get emotional you know human stuff yet one day so from there the doctor goes back to the holodeck he's resolved himself to finishing this thing his way no matter what anybody else thinks he pulls up his program to try and make some final revisions and he discovers that somebody has messed with it because when he starts it up he discovers Tom Paris in the role of the narrator, who's uh, telling him that he, the participant, is going to be placed in the role of the poor, beleaguered assistant to the overbearing EMH, who has to put up with all of the, his nonsense. Now, in the actual Voyager series, something that we didn't cover last week is that for uh, much of the series, Tom Paris, in addition to being the pilot and like designer for anything, you know, shuttle or, or uh, you know, flight tech related and kind of all around troubleshooter, you know, amateur holographer. He uh, is also tasked to be like the nurse. He's he's basically the emergency field medic, the backup for the EMH. So uh, he kind of has filled this role of assistant to the doctor. So he knows from what he speaks. So we then see the doctor in the role of this poor put upon assistant. And what he experiences is a sick bay where the holographic version of the doctor is this guy with a terrible comb over whose bedside manner is even worse and more dismissive than the actual doctor and he's arrogant he's dismissive he's lecherous he drugs the holographic version of seven and starts hitting on her 
And, uh, you know, basically he makes the doctor look terrible, <laughs> which is the idea. So we see exactly how the doctor reacts to that in the following scene where the doctor angrily confronts Tom Paris in a hallway about the changes he made to his program. How dare you, Tom Paris? How dare you trivialize my biting social commentary? They make serious accusations against you. And, uh, you know, Tom Paris is like, listen, that wasn't based on you. That was just, you know, why, why why do you think that was based on you? Clearly that wasn't you. And the doctor's like, you know, listen, what 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 I wrote is important. I'm sorry if you think that it's going to make you and everybody else look bad. And Tom Paris is like, listen, I don't care if the entire Alpha Quadrant thinks I am like that. Right. What really bothers me is that you think that I am like that. I thought I had earned your respect and clearly I haven't. And I think. That doesn't entirely break through, but that gives the doctor some pause to to consider what he's done. And uh, he will have a little bit of time because that brings us right into a commercial. And on the other side of that commercial, we see the doctor kind of uh, working in his office and he's not in a very good mood. He's, He's a little bit irritable about, you know, everybody getting on his back. Neelix comes in. And the doctor's like, oh, are you here to yell at me too? And Neelix is like, no, 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 far from it. Just the opposite. I want your help. I was hoping that you could introduce me to your publisher and he could help me get my Delta Quadrant cooking guide published in the Alpha Quadrant, which is funny, funny in quotes, but which is (laughs) the joke there is that Neelix is kind of pretty widely understood to be a terrible cook. So, you know, the fact that he would be writing a Delta Quadrant cooking guide is, is I guess, supposed to be very humorous. They, this episode, the writers seem to take a lot of joy in kind of poking fun at the stereotypes and maybe unfair digs that fans took at the series of the time. So anyway, so Neelix says, listen, I want you to know I don't think it matters. You you shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. Why would you care what anybody else thinks? This is your work. This is your message. It's important. And, you know, Neelix is actually using a clever little bit of reverse psychology there. So I will give him credit. Really? He gets very little credit for anybody for anything. But I will give him credit in this instance. Because the doctor reacts with, well, they're my friends. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want you know, what, what they think of me to be affected by this. I, I don't want them to think that I think of them that way. You know, that, that this is just something that I felt was important to put across as a story. And Neelix is like, well, why don't you find a middle ground? And he tells him some Talaxian, Talaxian is Neelix's race. He tells him some Talaxian proverb that doesn't make any sense. But the, the gist of it is, listen, why don't you find a middle ground? You can still have your story, but why don't you modify it a little bit so it's not the crew and it's not Voyager. It's it's a little different, so people don't immediately make that connection. That's a very adult bit of reasoning. And the doctor reluctantly agrees. Neelix gives him his isolinear chip so the doctor can have another conversation with the publisher in order to tell him about these revisions. So... 
in fact, uh, he, he tells the crew, listen, I've taken your concerns to heart. I am going to rework the story so it doesn't make you all look like terrible monsters. They're happy with that. And he, in fact, even asks Tom for some rewrites. Uh, now, Tom had kind of uh, accused him of thinking that Tom's work was lowbrow. And so the doctor kind of gently ribs him about it and says, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I want your help, even though you are a bit lowbrow. But uh, so, you know, it looks like things are going well. Excellent. And then uh, the next scene, uh, we get a scene. It's, it's not really super germane to the main plot, but it kind of it is a little bit of, of character development for a, a rare bit of character development for another character. Balana gets a message that her estranged father wants to talk to her. And uh, so they have a, a, a nice little scene where he misses her. He wants to reconnect with her and she grudgingly agrees to write him. So, you know, that's nice. But uh, back to the A story, we go back to the Pathfinder project where one Reginald Barkley is uh, telling Admiral Paris that uh, this hollow novel has just got out. It's all the rage. And the, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, it's about the Voyager crew and it doesn't make them look very good. We are what we are and we're doing the best we can. So uh, the Admiral gets on the horn with Janeway. He tells her, hey, this novel is out. It makes you guys look awful, and it has gone to thousands of hollow suites. It's being played everywhere. This is the Avengers Infinity Saga of the 24th century. I find that hard to believe. So, you know, this is not cool, and your doctor wrote it, so this is a little bit on you. I'm just not accustomed to seeing an unsatisfactory rating on a member of my crew. And so they, they get on the horn with the publisher, and the doctor's like, hey, I told you that I needed to make some revisions and you said that was fine. So you need to recall this thing immediately because, you know, it's not okay. I've decided that I do not want this work to be seen until I, I fix it. And uh, so, you know, it's my work. So you have to shut this whole thing down. And the publisher is like, <laughs> that's funny. You know, funny story. Uh, so we had a lawyer look at the Federation Charter, and um, actually, as it turns out, you are not a person and therefore are not entitled to any legal protections. How convenient. So I can basically do what I want with this program. Bye! Well, ain't that a thing? You'll have to learn to expect the unexpected. So what they decide to do is the Voyager crew looks at the the kind of the legal situation and they determine that in fact under a strict interpretation of federation law technically he is correct that holograms do not have any rights and protections as people oh no no uh, how can i accept this they go to a commercial and on the other side of that they have a, a meeting in the observation lounge and it's basically well this is a problem how do we fix this? And they decide that they could take some legal tax that would force the publisher to recall the hollow novel on, you know, grounds of either it exposing some classified technology 
or you know it being kind of slanderous towards the the crew or libel which one's written and which one is i i think libel is in writing and slander is verbal that's correct verbal yeah oh whatever anyway the point is they decide they might have a leg to stand on there but that doesn't help the doctor in fact they figure the bigger issue here and the one they really have to address is the fact that the doctor who they view as a peer and an individual, he has no rights and protections under the law. So they need to get on that. That's the the real thing, the real nugget that needs to be addressed. So they get a Federation arbitrator assigned to hear the case. It's not Captain Louvois, unfortunately, but uh, it's, it's just some dude. That man is bereft of passion and imagination. But so... This is going to be a hearing where where a ruling is going to have to be handed down on, you know, basically what a hologram is under Federation law. So uh, Tuvok winds up as the defender, the, the defense attorney, as it were, for the doctor in this case. And he argues that this case and in fact, the doctor himself are unique. They cannot be treated as any hologram under the law because the doctor has evolved past what your bog standard hologram would become. High praise from a Vulcan. In fact, uh, he's he's created work that uh, is unique and original and in fact matches by the publisher's own reluctant admission matches the definition of work that is created by an artist and under Federation law work created by an artist is protected. However, the arbitrator says that's a great point, but unfortunately, under Federation law, an artist is defined as a person and the doctor ain't a person, so that doesn't count. I can't accept this. It's unjustified. It's unfair. And then, given that they are working under the restrictions of this 11 minutes a day video conference structure, time's up. They have to reconvene tomorrow. The crew kind of gets together and says, you know, this really isn't going very well. So we need a new strategy. And they determine that their best course of action is to, instead of trying to find some kind of legal ground to stand on, they are going to adopt a similar tack, not that they lay this out in so many words, but they're going to adopt a similar tack to what Captain Picard did in Measure of a Man. They are going to speak to the quality of the Doctor's character. They are going to demonstrate the ways in which he has grown and evolved and established himself as an individual and, uh, you know, hopefully convince the arbitrator that way. So that's what they do. They're going to tell his story. Seven testifies that she has grown as a person because of him. He has helped her with her transition from Borg to human And, uh, you know, because of him, she has been able to become a more well-adjusted, socially healthy individual. What are you saying? I don't know. That's not a great way to phrase it, but that's the gist of what she says. So then Harry Kim talks about how the doctor insisted on adding emergency command subroutines to his program, which 
is true and something that perhaps we will cover down the line in a, a future episode of this podcast. You said yourself that this is only a possibility. But he insisted on having the capacity to command a ship in an emergency added to his subroutines, which proves that he is somebody who has a willingness and a desire to grow as a person beyond the bounds of his programming. Reg Barkley attests that uh, the doctor came to fix Dr. Zimmerman, his health, which we covered at the beginning of this episode, and how, you know, that demonstrates that he has real feeling towards another person. And he cared about that. He actually, he cared enough to demand that he come himself and fix the problem. So he, you know, he has that capacity to for for love and and um compassion captain janeway in an interesting tactic she testifies that the doctor disobeyed her her direct orders and endangered her crew on one occasion at least one occasion and they say well that doesn't put him in a very good light does it she's like no but it demonstrates that you know he he has displayed a capacity for self-determination, which is human behavior. And then they, I don't know, they play the slavery card. How uh, she talks about how, you know, at one point in history, all races tend to have a group of people that uh, you know, the, the, there's a very limited group of people who are seen as having rights. And then as people's understanding of kind of morality and ethics grows, that group of people who are permitted rights grows along with it and gets bigger and bigger and, you know, eventually comes to include other races and species and, you know, forms of life. And this situation should be no different. The doctor is just another form of life that should have those protections expanded to include him. So the arbitrator's like, yeah, I'm going to need to think about that. So we get kind of a, uh, a breather where in the mess hall, Seven offers Harry Kim her isolinear chip because she doesn't have any family and she feels bad that he lost the opportunity to talk to his parents for his full allotted time. And, you know, he's like, I can't accept this because you should have the opportunity to talk to your own family. And she's like, my parents were assimilated. I don't have anybody. And, uh, he was like, well, what about uh, this, this one woman, Irene Hansen, who's your aunt? She's like, well, why would she want to talk to me? He's like, well, you should definitely talk to her anyway. I think it's important for you to do that. And so she does. She she calls Aunt Irene and she is actually very, very happy to talk to her. Apparently, she knew Seven when she was a child. Annika was, was what she was born as. She watched her for a week when she was six and she was a very stubborn child. She locked herself in her bedroom and wouldn't come out for a while uh she she complained about the food she was insistent that she eat some kind of strawberry treat and seven's like i actually love strawberries i had no idea that went back to my childhood and uh aunt irene basically tells her what a terror she was as a six-year-old and seven's like 
I'm really sorry I called. Wow, I, I had no idea I was so awful to you. She's like, no, I'm so glad you called. It's wonderful to see you. I'm so very happy that, that you're okay. And so that, you know, that gives Seven kind of a sense of family that, uh, and, and the importance of family that she did not previously have, which, you know, I think maybe is a glimmer of what would evolve into her, you know, love and uh, the protectiveness that she felt towards Ichab ultimately. So, home stretch. We're almost there, James. I hope that's true. We go back to the arbitrator, and he pontificates for a while, as these people always do, about you know the the weight and importance of the decision that he has to make and how blah 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 he's only one man and what he decides is going to have ramifications etc etc get to the point eventually he does and that point is that in his estimation despite everything that he's heard the doctor is still not a person or at least he's not willing to make the determination that the doctor is a person he's not willing to make the determination that a hologram can be a person because of the importance of what that ruling would come to mean. He's perfectly willing to kick that can down the road and let somebody else make that decision down the line. However, he is willing to grant that the doctor is an artist and entitled to the protections of an artist under the law. So they immediately demand that the existing copies of photons be free be retracted and uh unpublished if such a thing is possible and recalled uh the publisher is beside himself that's good but you know <laughs> tough i'm inclined to agree so uh following that the voyager crew they're like yeah you did it you struck the first blow for holograms and the doctor's like yeah i mean that's fine and all, but it's not great. I mean, they still don't have any rights, so we're kind of back where we started here. Nothing works just as you hope. And they're like, well, you know what? I think you have a, a hollow novel to finish because, uh, you know, you find a new publisher and you still have a story to tell, so you should get on that. And then we cut to four months later in a Federation dilithium mine, and we see a bunch of Mark Ones, a bunch of Robert Picardos walking around with their shovels and picks and, I don't know, tricorder things. One of them tells the other, yeah, you need to go get your holographic diagnostic, but while you're there, you should play this one thing called Photons Be Free. I think you're really going to like it. So we get the idea that the existing Mark Ones that are out there, they are still out there. They do have some kind of semblance of personality and individuality, and this is maybe a glimmer of hope for them in the the awful situation which they have been consigned to. So that will end this episode of Voyager, and uh, that will end my synopsis of such. Now, uh, James, you are in a very unique situation for for this particular episode because the listener won't know this i didn't know this until just a little while ago when we were discussing it before the podcast this is the first episode of voyager that you have ever actually seen you can't expect me to believe that so you have a very unique perspective on what 
we just reviewed. So James, I am eagerly anticipating the answer to this question, James. What did you think of this episode? Report. I don't regret that uh, I did not watch Voyager for the last 25 years or so. Um, <laughs> no, this didn't sell you on it? No. Uh, it was interesting to, to see it for the first time, especially being a Star Trek fan my whole life and, and from the original series on and seeing their interpretation of uh, what the Star Trek universe would be like. And I think you described it very well in, in the previous uh, Vintage Picard podcast of what the synopsis of Voyager was, the good points, the bad points, and how people feel about it and, and its legacy. So I was prepared with that, and I did go in with an open mind and thinking, oh, maybe I should have watched this to a certain extent. And uh, when it was all said and done, no, I, I, I again, I, I don't uh, feel that I missed out at all. Especially, too, when we're talking about the, the whole plots of uh, sentient beings and, and how important that is in the, uh, as, as a plot device in the Star Trek universe, that uh, you see the next generation and they address it so well. And uh, they, they answered the questions and they, they brought it out there and they, they had both points, pro and cons, and who's for it, who's against it, and the characters involved. It was all fleshed out and, and it was well thought out. And then it just seems like to me, Voyager is kind of like a Cliff's Notes version of that, where it wasn't as fleshed out and I already saw that and they already resolved these things. And, and then that they, it, you said it best too, that at the end of the episode, one of the things that I do love about uh, the original series and Next Generation and, and even Enterprise and obviously Deep Space Nine is that for the most part that they had a problem in the episode and then they pulled out the... Uh, the solution at the end, you know, it's, it's an hour long show and they, they got to the feel good ending. They didn't do that in this, uh, this episode of Voyager. Okay. That they, they had the book published and that they had the loophole of, uh, the, the EMH as being an, an artist, but that, uh, still the EMH didn't have any rights. And, uh, so at least at, at the very, very end, at least they had a, a, a seed planted that maybe there will be a revolution and they will readdress it and then worry about that kicking the can down the line, as you said, as well. So at least that wasn't totally bad. But for the most part, like Tom Paris, Nick Locarno, when, when you told me that, that, that really uh, mm -hmm. got me upset. And the Doctor himself, I, I do recall the episode in Deep Space Nine when they were going to base that hologram on Dr. Bashir, which made mm -hmm. complete sense. But uh, I don't know if they're just trying to, to, to take the heart and passion of Dr. McCoy from the original series where he was always butting heads with Spock, which I just love that the human versus Vulcan line. And, but he was a good doctor. Yeah. I know the joke. Uh, he's dead, Jim, blah, blah, blah. But he was a good doctor. And uh, mm -hmm. if he'd lose his patience or, or he was emotional about something, it was because his heart was in the right place. This hologram doctor just seems to be irritable and has no bedside manner. And I don't understand that for incorporating that into a hologram, which I did like in um, Star Trek Picard, the EMHs on the uh, 5150, they had their own individual uh, personalities and, and they were excellent at the jobs that they did. So I like that, but I, I, it was a distraction for me for uh, the doctor in, in Voyager. And then, as you've also pointed out, too, in, in podcasts past, that uh, there's somebody that's, okay, this is a, an object, it's a tool, it has no rights, and I could do with it what I will. And then somebody comes over and says, no, wait, that has 
it, it, it has its own thoughts. It can adapt. It's not just a tool. It has rights. Oh, okay. So it was the same thing with, um, with the doctor there. He was adamant that uh, he was defending himself, that the, his, his hollow novel was based loosely on his experiences and therefore that it was on a ship and with a crew and based on the actual crew members of Voyager. And then uh, Locarno uh, Paris there hijacks the, 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 the story and proves his point, saying that uh, we have feelings and, and this could be misinterpreted. And then, uh, okay, the doctor backs off a little bit. And then all of a sudden, when the novel is uh, sent out against his wishes, he's totally hell-bent on saying, no, I want to redo it and, and rewrite it so that it isn't reflective on anybody that I know or that's in Starfleet currently and things like that. So I kind of thought that was kind of strange too. The positives for the episode, which I like, yes, uh, I really like that to a seven of nine story. That was nice to get back to her human background and, and contacting a relative that has memories of her and, and possibly mm -hmm. obviously about her parents and things. So I, uh, that that's great. That's hopeful, positive, all good. And the actor that played the Arbiter... The Arbiter. Sarcastically, I kind of thought of... He, he reminded me a lot of Moonlight Graham. Who is that? From um, Field of Dreams, played mm. by Burt Lancaster. But the actor himself, Joseph Campanella, who unfortunately just recently passed away basically two years ago to the day as we're recording this podcast, is that uh, he did such a great job with, with the, the brief time that he had on the um, episode. And, and yeah, his hands were tied a little bit and things like that, but at least he did come to a decision. But the actor himself, career, a fascinating man too, uh, but, but, but an actor who's uh, played many roles in many TV series and movies. But the thing that, that I really liked too, just looking up the character uh, Joseph Campanella, was he provided a voice for Batman the Animated Series as he played the crime doctor. And also, huh. off-air, Gary and I were talking about, um, we're also Spider-Man fans as well, that uh, in the cartoon of the 90s, the Spider-Man cartoon of the 90s, uh, Mr. Campanella played the lizard and Dr. Connors, which uh, was pretty amazing too. So that all kind of came full circle there for the whole sci-fi thing, which I kind of like to do on this podcast is tie things into one another and, yeah. and just promote the, the great science fiction that it is and, and why we love it so much and, and the, the world of Star Trek uh, in general. Did but, he, uh, just a question, did he only play roles that were doctor or doctor adjacent? <laughs> no, he did not. But okay. uh, uh, but but he had a long career and he lived into uh -huh. his 90s, but uh, really mm -hmm. fascinating and uh, his relatives, too, and things like that. But anyway, all in all, it was a good episode. If this is an introduction to Voyager, I, I think it's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And that's God's honest truth. I did not ever watch an episode of Voyager up until that point for this podcast to discuss it. So thank you for uh, the overview that you gave. It was a fair, very well thought out overview. And, and I agree with it very much. I, I hope the listener feels the same way. And if you don't, we'd like to hear that as well. Yes, of course. Dear listener, but um, interesting and in, in, in how it goes into the canon of the, uh, the, the topics that we're talking about with rights for all beings. And, um, Again, it, it's a nice forerunner to uh, Star Trek Picard. All right. Well, those are fair points. And uh, James, I do, you're, in, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, but I do have to actually disagree with you on, on one of the things that you said. Disputes are not permitted. I hereby declare, therefore, all disagreements resolved. And, uh, you know, you, you criticized the episode for failing to wrap things up neatly in a bow at the end. 
I think it's actually refreshing that there was an episode where things didn't get kind of, you know, the, the magic happy ending, because that, as you said, that is what we usually see, what we're used to seeing. And, and it's, it's kind of a nice change of pace to see something different because, you know, in real life, the good guys don't always win. And obviously, you know, the, the idea of fantasy and science fiction is that it's escapism and you don't necessarily want to think about real life. But I think something, if you know something is going to wrap up always with a neat, happy ending, it takes away the stakes. And to add a little weight in that way by not making it an entirely happy ending, I think that that added something to the episode. To your point about the doctor's bedside manner, that has been kind of a character trait and and something that has been a running theme of his character for the whole series. It's kind of intentional. You have to understand that the EMH, the emergency medical hologram, was not designed for long-term use. It was designed in an emergency, and it was the first version of that program. So when Dr. Zimmerman designed it, he designed it with the medical knowledge of hundreds, if not thousands of doctors, like the entire medical database of the Federation, including some of the the most brilliant medical minds in Federation history. And, you know, he he did all that. So he's an incredibly, extremely competent doctor. But Zimmerman based his personality on himself. And Zimmerman is a prickly curmudgeon. So, uh, in fact, the the reason why uh, this is something that goes back to Lifeline, which, again, it's a good episode. You should check it out. Yes, you have said that. But one of the reasons why the EMH Mark One was retired so quickly is because the the bedside manner was so brusque and difficult to deal with. People people saw that as a failing, as as the fatal flaw of that. So that that kind of plays into the whole thing of of what the doctor actually is and what he's had to try to overcome. You know, so I I can understand why he would be off-putting, but the whole off-putting aspect of his personality is a character trait that is there to, you know, kind of give nuance to his character and and facilitate storytelling. Again, that's something I'm used to for Star Trek is I like characters that I could root for and get behind sure. and care about. And seven years of that would be, no, I, I just, that's just me personally. No, no, that, uh, and, and especially, yeah, especially that, that is a hologram. Why would you put something that that's a, that I consider a flaw? Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm kind of mixing my real life with, with, with fantasy here too, because I've, come across doctors that had no bedside manner and, and, mm-hmm. and, and have been around nurses that are confrontational and have no people skills. And in my mind, if you can't, your job is to help people. Your job is to get sick people well again and put their minds at ease and make sure everything's okay. If you can't do something as basic as just calm somebody down or, or help someone, mm-hmm. go into another profession you know work on cars or something because the basic thing anytime i've been sick anytime people i've loved have been sick you're nervous to death you know you don't know what to expect you you, you need that's part of the, the the process of healing is 
it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're on, you're in good hands. Uh, so that's maybe that's just me. I'll take full responsibility on, on that. that. That's fine. And uh, I, I think that's good having the, the two different opinions on that. And maybe that's one of the points of, uh, of, of Voyager itself was it was designed that way that uh, maybe they were rocking the boat of the Star Trek universe in, in coming up with, um, I don't know, divisive uh, characters. No, that's entirely fair. I'm not going to get a whole into a whole thing about yeah. doctors, but, uh, you know, it, it, it was a choice is, is all I'm really trying to say. And the idea that he didn't care about, I mean, he, he was brusque and difficult to deal with, but he did absolutely care about his patients. He was, he was passionate and, you know, cared to a fault about the health and well-being of his patients, you know, whether he was able to express that in a, a, a socially pleasant way is another story. But, you know, the passion was there. Funny story about Robert Picardo. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I saw this on Wikipedia. So I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't swear to the authenticity of, of what I'm about to say, but uh, the source is from a, like a, an interview on Star Trek.com or something. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is accurate, but so supposedly Robert Picardo auditioned for the role of, well, he first auditioned for the role of Neelix and he didn't get it, but they asked him to come back and read for the doctor. And so he did. And he was given like one line, to read apparently which uh was from the pilot where there's a situation where the doctor is first activated and the crew he's he's talking to people and the whole crew is like suddenly beamed away and so he gets irritated about that that nobody turned him off i, I forget what the exact line is it's something like uh could nobody be bothered to turn me off before they left and so apparently he ad-libbed the line, I'm a doctor, not a nightlight, <laughs> which uh, ad-libbing is, is like strictly prohibited in this kind of casting situation, uh, you know, this kind of audition. So he thought, oh, I tanked the role for sure. But that, that was, uh, I guess, one of the factors that actually got him the part. And they used that line in the episode. Well, good for Coach Cutlip. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so he was, uh, you know, he was channeling his inner McCoy. Nice. Well done. And I believe it was canon that Dr. McCoy was one of the doctors that his program was based on. So. I should hope so. <laughs> so he, he did, as you, I, I think you saw in this episode, he did bust out the I'm a doctor, not a line from time to time. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Another la last thing about Robert Ricardo and and specifically the episode Lifeline. He's he's really a very good actor. I mean, the, his performance as the doctor was I mean, the doctor was consistently one of the best parts of Voyager for for the entire run of the show. But when you saw in in the episode Lifeline, when you saw Robert Ricardo playing against himself as a different character for half the episode, that was really it was great acting. So credit to him for that. But James, here, here's the thing. Like, so we've spent the last couple of podcasts talking about how the Federation treats artificial life forms. And, you know, as we've said, this is the artificial rights arc. So that's why we've been covering these episodes and, you know, trying to tie it into 
how the synths are treated in Star Trek Picard and, and basically how the Federation got from where it was in the TNG era to where it is now. You know, the kind of the groundwork that's been laid. And I think the doctor's case is is really emblematic. I would appreciate a more detailed explanation. You know, we, we, we talked about how they treated data. We talked about how they treated the exocomps. And now it's it's the same thing with the doctor. He has been treated. And, and this, as we just talked about, this was not a happy ending for him. They They did not, in fact, extend those rights to the holograms in the end because i don't know uh, well we we discussed it i'm not going to retread <laughs> we we can agree to disagree on on how that should have ended but like he, here's here's my thing so i feel like at this point in the federation history after they've already had these kind of landmark decisions made and granted, the exocomp situation wasn't made by a judge, but it was kind of a recognition of life in that form nonetheless. I feel like at this point, they should have already codified some kind of level at which the artificial being is recognized as being life with rights, because... You know, all of these things started out as created. I mean, yes, the intention was to make Data a sentient being. That was Dr. Sung's intention. But nevertheless, he was created as an android. You know, there was no guarantee that that was going to be the case. And as far as the Federation was concerned, he was property until he wasn't. I would think at some point they would have set down a threshold you know, past which something exhibits certain characteristics and it can be at least considered for a candidate for uh, being recognized as a sentient being. What do you think? That's what I'm actually really confused about. Uh, it, it's all the same universe and it's all under Star Trek. But as you pointed out in Measure of a Man, that they did rule that Data has rights and, and is a life form. Yes, it is true. Artificial, so be it, but still a life form. Again, we, we've talked about, like in the motion picture, where V'ger thought that the Enterprise, was, even though it was a machine, was more important than the beings inside of it that were making it work and all that stuff. So that, that was kind of a, a little bit of the opposite uh, point of view. And then you go to Voyager, and then they really didn't give the hologram the same respect as they did for data again it, it's really on the same level so i can't give you an answer i apologize for that it, it's something that it seems a little bit inconsistent i won't say hypocritical but it is it's right for one thing but it's not right for another so i don't know if they just justify it because it's a hologram and then even comes to mind too when when you, you talked about uh, this this very important episode in, in our topic in Deep Space Nine with Vic Fontaine, where he was a hologram in the hollow suite, and I think he was, he couldn't leave the hollow suite like uh, the Doctor can in in Voyager, but still, he kind of developed his own personality, and and he was more than just the programming. And as you've pointed out too, Gary, going back to uh, the Next Generation with with Moriarty, so is that a double standard that they think androids because they are physical and Really, you can 
interact with someone fully as opposed to a hologram that has the ability to touch and do things, but it's maybe considering, for lack of a better term, it's 2D versus 3D? I'm confused. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too into the weeds with holograms because I think it's very likely that we will revisit the hologram topic, you know, in a larger arc down the road on this podcast. However, with the topic of life and sentience and that whole thing, you mentioned Moriarty, which is an interesting case because Moriarty is something that was kind of created as sentient out of whole cloth by accident, by the Enterprise's computer. And frankly, they didn't do right by him either, if we're being honest. Even the, the you know, right, upstanding, moral crew of the Enterprise. If your issues are with me, then deal with me. You know, it was inconvenient for them, for Moriarty, because he kept taking over the ship. So at the end of the day, they basically tricked him into thinking he had become a real boy and stuck him in a server in a closet somewhere. So, I mean, that's not so great. Nobody's perfect. And and maybe down the road we can revisit that. Maybe not a full episode, but as a topic. But Vic Fontaine is an interesting case because... He was written to be self-aware. He knew from the off that he was a hologram. Now, does that make him sentient or does that just make him a very clever program? I'm not sure. I would probably, if pressed, I would probably lean towards sentience. But the fact that he was designed specifically to serve that function kind of muddies the waters there a little bit. But with the doctor... The Doctor is a clear case of somebody evolving past the bounds of his programming. And we can see, based on the behavior of the Mark Ones that we see at the end of the episode here, you know, they have self-awareness, they have their own interests, and their own, um, I don't know, attitudes and opinions on things. And they can want things and 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 desire things outside of the bounds of their programming. So maybe it's kind of natural that in the Star Trek universe, any hologram that's been active for longer than it was designed to will eventually evolve kind of like the exocomps did will eventually evolve new pathways and algorithms that do kind of bring it over the cusp of sentience and, you know, actual life. I'm not sure. It's a big question. And obviously by Star Trek Picard, they've kind of determined that synthetic life is, and well, even that, the, again, I don't want to get too into the weeds on the holograms because the holograms on the Van Halen are definitively not treated as sentient beings. They're just tools and uh, it's funny, you mentioned earlier in the episode about how they're all incredibly competent at their jobs. I would argue that Emmett is not so good at his job, the tactical hologram. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to be drunk and incapable of actually firing the phasers when he's supposed to. So, like, I don't know why anyone would design a hologram that way, but that that's especially one in such a critical role. But that that's neither here nor there. Maybe a pacifist designed Emmett. Noble sentiments. But that's too easy an answer. But, like, I, it's, uh, I guess the way I could justify that is that the synths were 
Sung type androids and they were specifically based on data. So having demonstrated a certain level of intelligence and, you know, arguable sentience, I mean, it's, it's pretty inarguable if you've spent time with them, but not that we've actually spent time with them because they're fictional characters. But what is the purpose of this? I think the precedent of data having been ruled a life form is what kind of pushes them over the edge for that. Holograms, I don't know if they would be recognized. I mean, it seems like they probably wouldn't, at least not all. It's probably kind of a case-by-case scenario. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a big, big question. That is an understatement. And you may not agree with me, James, and the listener may not agree. You know, that, that's, that's, it is what it is. We can argue about this till we're blue in the face, but I think the one thing that we can agree on, whether or not you like the character of the doctor, we can agree (laughs) that the artificial rights arc has come to its conclusion. About time. So James, we're allowed to have our own opinions and listener, if you have an opinion that you would like to share with us a, a, a completely different viewpoint, or if you'd like to take sides with one of, or the other of us, please feel free. We want to hear from you. Feel free to contact us. You can email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. We can be got on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are Vintage Picard. Use the hashtag Vintage Picard if you so choose. We want very much to hear from you. We want to hear your opinions. We want to know what you want us to cover in future editions of Star Trek Picard. We've got our ideas, but we want to hear your ideas as well. Anyone receiving this transmission, please respond. So we will be back with another episode of Vintage Picard in two weeks' time. And, you know, I, I think I think you're going to enjoy where we're going to go with this. Uh, suffice to say, we're going to be heading back to a little more traditional ground for this podcast. A little, a little more of our our comfort zone for uh, what we normally cover here. And you're going to enjoy that. And we want to make sure that you don't miss out on the opportunity to hear that. So we want you to subscribe to the podcast. You just, for an example, we dropped a, a surprise bonus feature in our Voyager briefing last week. We didn't announce it. We just did it. And uh, you may not have seen it because you know, if you're not subscribed, you weren't looking for it and you didn't know it was there, but uh, we want it to appear in your feed. We want it to be right there whenever we drop something like that. So please, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast. We're not hard to find. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Spreaker, uh, all the casting stuff. We're there. Check us out. Get us. It's not hard. And uh, that way you can you can have us right there in the palm of your very hand for your listening enjoyment the next time we drop an episode or or something like that briefing. And finally, before we say goodbye, one more quick reminder that uh, if you haven't already, you're going to want to go over to teespring.com slash choose hyphen to hyphen live because you're going to want to get your hands on one of those sweet vintage Picard t-shirts. You know the ones we're talking about, the ones that feature the silhouette of everyone's favorite Coatmelot. Oh, no. Which is outlined in words and phrases that he is synonymous with and that describe his character. So, you know, if you haven't done so already, please, again, check that out. teespring.com slash choose hyphen to hyphen live 
and uh, you know you can get yourself a shirt or a hoodie or a poster or you know it's really it's it's uh it's something that you're gonna want to give yourself the opportunity to consider because it really is uh and, and i again i know i'm biased in saying this but it i swear to you it is true it is a nice design and you are at least going to want to check it out if you haven't done so already so please do that in the uh in the intervening time until we can speak to you again and also in that time i i would i would remind you please my friend choose to live bye we should probably talk about what we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah, yeah. I'm putting off the inevitable because I don't know what I'm going to talk about tonight. Well, you're going to ask me questions. Okay. In three, two. Oh, do we have to sync up? Yes, we do. Okay. Three, four, five. <laughs> Thank you, James. <laughs> I'm glad one of us knows how this thing works.